For the preaching of God's Word, we turn again to Luke chapter 15 to consider the elder brother who is held forth to us in the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son. For our focus here then the Word of God, Luke 15 from verse 25 and through the end, verse 32. Now his elder son was in the field, And as he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, Thy brother is come, and thy father hath killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. And he was angry, and would not go in. Therefore came his father out, and entreated him. And he answering said to his father, Lo, These many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. And yet thou never gavest me a kid, that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. And he said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me. And all that I have is thine. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad, for this thy brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. These verses give us our focus for this morning as we consider the teaching from this parable regarding Not so much anymore the prodigal son, but the elder son. We've treated, of course, already this parable as we saw this prodigal son to be so employed by Christ in his teaching to show what true repentance looks like and why there is great delight in heaven over one sinner that repents. This is the third of three parables which really stand as three chords of one strand, as it were, united in holding forth a reproof to what the chapter opens with. So in chapter 15, you remember, as verse 1 records, then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. And so what we see here is an addressing of those things. The first two parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin more purposely focus upon the cause for rejoicing, that when something that is lost is found, there's rejoicing. This continues that same teaching as we've seen already, but now it casts a certain light and focus upon those who were murmuring at the same And so you'll notice a few things here before us. The prodigal is rightly acknowledged to have been a wicked sinner. And so when the son says, listen, your son has devoured your living with harlots. What a shameful thing that must have been. And it would be to us when our children were to go and embrace scandalous things. This is a truth that this elder son brings up. 
And the father doesn't deny it. The father doesn't say, you've overstated it. You know, sometimes parents can become defensive and they have this desire to defend and sort of deflect the sinful reality. There's no reason to deflect it. It's to come and grieve over it. What you've said is right. My child is in sin or my child was in sin. But notice what the father says. He says... Verse 32, it was meet, verse 32, meet, appropriate, fitting, that we should make merry and be glad. For this thy brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. In his very statement for the cause of rejoicing, he is acknowledging that this younger son was engaged in all manner of wickedness. He was dead. What you've said is true. But son, this is the very reason we should be rejoicing. Because though that's what he was, by grace now he's alive. He's been found. He's been brought to life. This is a cause of rejoicing. And yet, we are told the end of all things, but the elder son seems to persist in this hatred. Notice the descriptions that are there given of the elder son. He's working when the son returns. His elder son was in the field. That's not without purpose. This elder son is busy. He's uh, uh, working hard. He's with the servants working. Christ is painting a picture of the cause for this man's anger. He's there laboring in the field. He's there working diligently. Notice his own statement, verse 29. He says, These many years do I serve thee. He's a son, and yet he's focused upon his work. That's his whole identity. He's bound up in what his hand is performing. He's pointing out all that his hand is doing. And so when he looks at the younger son, he says, look what he's done. He's wasted your gifts. He's sinned in all that he's done. And yet you're now giving him all of these things. This father's response is simple, and yet it's tremendously profound and deep. He says, verse 31, Son, Thou art ever with me. And listen to this. All that I have is Thine. No warrant to this son to think that he has to perform even one such deed in order to attain to standing. He's reproving the older son by thinking he stands and gains by his work. The whole thrust of this passage is both to indicate why there are those who, as is recorded, murmur against Christ receiving sinners, and it is meant to reprove those who do so. And fundamental to the cause is the fact that as the elder son is shown, So those who murmur about the grace of repentance and gracious reception of sinners to Christ, 
It reveals that they are a self-righteous lot. Their identity is bound up with their performance. And brethren, we ought to note that this is not merely spoken against the Jews as versus the Gentiles. There are implications of that. But remember, those who are publicans and sinners are likewise Jews coming to Christ. The contrast is not between Jew and Gentile. The contrast is between self-righteous and graciously penitent. That's the contrast. It stands in our day when the larger number of the church and those in the covenant are made up of Gentiles. It stands for those even today who in God's covenant would think to themselves, I stand in God's covenant by my works, by my righteousness. Brethren, there are tons of things that come to us by this, not least of which in our own day is that rejection of a teaching that says by our covenantal obedience, we both enter in and maintain our standing with God. There is a false teaching that in the past decade has gone and revived at various times, the so-called covenantal nomism, whereby we maintain our covenantal standing by our own works, which is here likewise shown to be false. All that I have, the Father says, is yours. And though we can certainly make a distinction between those who are absolutely self-righteous and those who are relatively self-righteous, we ought to show and see that this would apply to both. Absolutely self-righteous would be those who are seeking to attain to God's blessing by their works. These are dead in their sins. These are unregenerate. Whether in the covenant or out, it doesn't matter. They stand, as it were, by their works. When we say self-righteousness, we mean works righteousness. They're coming and appealing to God, to their works, saying, look what I've done. And surely they stand condemned, ignorant of the spiritual demands of the law and the lack of righteousness that they truly have. But likewise, we can speak of those whom we might call relatively self-righteous. They're believers, they're saved, they're renewed, they're trusting in Christ, and yet there's a battle within them that is ever waging war, that is seeking, as it were, to place again a foot upon their own works. And it comes in our petitions, it comes in our frustrations, it comes in our expectations. We come to God frustrated, and at the root of it is we're saying, God, why are you giving? Because I'm doing. Brethren, this stands as a reproof to us, even who would be believers and would seek to return again to the law. So as we consider these things, consider first the focus of the self-righteous, the desire of the self-righteous, and lastly, the hatred of the self-righteous. This doesn't tell us all and everything about those who would be self-righteous, but it does give us a portrait clear enough by which we may assess ourselves and indeed flee unto Christ who alone is the Savior. Well, firstly then, the focus of the self-righteous. In basic summary fashion, we can say the focus is personal performance. We've seen this already in opening the text somewhat, when the Son says, Lo, and capture that word, it appears many times in Scripture, it's saying, look at this. 
Behold. We say to our children sometimes when we're correcting them and their eyes are going here and they're walking away, we say, stop, turn to me, look me in the face. Look at my eyes. I need you to pay attention. That's what the Son is saying to the Father. He's calling the Father and saying, I want you to look at this. I want you to focus on this. And why would the Son want Him to do that? That that's what He's focused on. This is what I'm focused on. This is what I'm looking at. These many years do I serve Thee. It discloses so much about His focus. This is my focus. My whole identity is bound up in my work for You. It's... I serve Thee. There's not a word of the provision of the Father. There's not a word of the love of the Father. There's not a word of the kindness of the Father. It's all upon the shoulders of this elder son. Look what I've done. And oh, the audacity of the words that follow. Neither transgressed I at any time Thy commandment. Now, there's a way in which this, of course, could be deemed correct in the way of obedience. Perhaps the son's saying this, you said go to the field and work, I went to the field and work. You say go pick up this mess, I went and picked up this mess. You say, hey, take this message to this person, I went and did that. But unbeknownst to the elder son is this wickedness within that is the violation of true obedience. You and I know what it is by experience to say and do the right thing while inside are disjointed. Oh, the pain and agony that is inflicted upon our bodies when we can move hands, fingers, and so on, and yet there's a bone out of alignment. We know that though something's functioning, something else is terribly wrong. Well, the son is unaware of that which is disjointed. The anger that wells indication that whatever obedience he's issuing unto his father is not out of the proper sphere and uh, uh, fountain of love, but it's out of legal attainment. Look what I'm doing. See what I'm doing. I'm coming. I'm doing it. It's in my own strength. <clears throat> I'm free of the scandals of your younger son. I am good, right, and thus worthy of blessing. Thus, we see something of the difference between what historically is known as legal obedience and evangelical obedience. Both have some form of obeying God's commandment. The difference is essential essential. Legal obedience looks at God's law and says, I'm going to perform this in order to merit from you your blessings. And so it looks at the law of God. It looks at what's commanded. And it says, for instance, look, I'm not to bow down to idols. I'm free of idolatry. It says, I'm not to murder. My hands are free and innocent of blood. I'm not to commit adultery. I cut it all off. Right? It's gone. It's done. It's over. And yet, the motive for it is, as we'll see, one's personal attainment to the righteousness that God would reward. Moreover, legal obedience 
is often neglecting of that spiritual demand of God's law. Christ makes much of this in the Sermon on the Mount. When he says, listen, you've heard it said, thou shalt not kill. And he says, I say unto you, if you say, thou fool. Right? There's a spiritual impact of God's law. The law, in other words, doesn't just address the outward behavior. It's searching the inmost part of the soul. Evangelical or gospel or gracious obedience looks at the law and is concerned about obedience from a different motive. The motive is not to award of merit, saying, look what I've purchased and done. It's rather to give glory to God who has loved Him, who has received Him, who has blessed Him. And it puts an entirely different form of mark upon the obedience. Instead of the bitter, resenting, dry, and frail form of legal obedience, there's life and joy and gladness. Look at the Son. There's no joy of disobedience. There's no gladness of obedience. And look at your obedience and you discover that it's more full of bitter resentment. And it's more full of looking at others and saying, look what they're not doing and look what I'm doing. You should have alarms going off in your soul saying, this obedience is more like the elder brother who is reproved, who is shown to be in error. What it's discovering to us when we discover those things is I am focused on myself and my righteousness. Now, let's be clear. Obedience isn't the issue. It's right for us to look at God's law and say, I need to perform these things. Because as is good, it's holy, it's just. Some people say, they're so concerned about God's law, legalists. If that's the case, let's be clear. Paul's a legalist. Christ is a legalist. David is a legalist. The whole lot of believers in the Bible are legalists because you can't find one that says anything but that the law is good. Christ Himself says, I delight in your will. Paul says, I delight in in the law of God after the inner man. But here's the difference. They delight in it. They love it. It's on their heart. They rejoice in it. And so it's a joy and a blessing for them to look at God's law because they're not motivated by a self-righteous principle to say, I'm going to do this so that I can come to God and say, now give. They're rather motivated by a principle of grace. That's what we actually see in a little hint at the opening of this chapter. These publicans and sinners are drawing near to Christ to hear Him. They're wanting to learn from Christ. They aren't constrained. They aren't bitterly forced. They aren't going well, this is what we have to do. And look, so-and-so down the street's not doing it, but we're going to go do it so we get points before God. They lovingly come to rejoice in their Savior. The motive is not the motive of the elder brother. Look what I've done. Look at all I've performed. And what then is the desire of the self-righteous? 
Well, you see it in what the Son brings up. He says, verse 30, As soon as this thy Son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. Look what you've done for him. Look what you've given to him. But what did he say earlier? I serve thee these many years. Who's the one keeping the accounting? It's the Son. I've gone through it. I've checked it off. I'm watching. I'm paying attention to this. I've never transgressed thy commandment. And yet, thou never gavest me a kid, that is, a small goat, that I might make merry with my friends. I want you to picture the contrast here. In verse 27 it says, Thy father hath killed the fatted calf, which is a bigger creature. And the son now says, You've never given me a small goat. What's the son saying? Though I have been righteous, you've never given me the least kindness. What's he saying? The accounting is off on your part. You've messed up. You haven't seen how faithful I've been. You haven't seen what I should have attained. You don't understand all of my work, all of my merit, You give this Son the best and richest blessings and you've never given me the slightest of blessings though I deserve far this Son of yours. It's showing us the desire, isn't it? I desire to have by my obedience. I earn and merit and purchase blessings. And when you keep them from Me, you're the one at fault. And brethren, if we search our hearts, it's not the case that we must come confessing that so many of our frustrations aired before the Lord Jesus Christ is but the mimicking and the parodying of such tones and words as this elder son We come saying, Lord, I've cleansed my hands in vain. The wicked receive blessings that I never get a whisper of. We're focused on our works. We're focused on our attainments. We're focused on our earnings. And we're keeping an account and reckoning in our book. And when God fails to give what we think we deserve, we're ready to throw it up and say, you're off. You're the one who's made the mistake. What it discloses, of course, is that our motive is not to bless God's name. It's not gratitude to God when such things are going on. It's not delight in God. It's that we have something in our hand to purchase His blessing with. And brethren, if this describes you absolutely, you are yet in your sins. If this is your whole arrangement before the Lord, this discloses to you that you are but one of these who is a Pharisee and scribe murmuring because you have misunderstood the economy of God's grace. Yes, it's right to say He calls us to obedience. 
But He doesn't call us to that obedience which is no real obedience. He doesn't call us to an obedience by our own strength which is frail and fragile and moth-eaten. He calls us to an obedience motivated by faith and love which can only come as it is with this younger son who was lost and is found, who was dead and is alive. The younger son actually has the principle of grace in him because though he recklessly abandoned himself to all manner of wickedness, God's grace, as it were, brought him to life and drew him unto the Father. This, of course, being a picture of the sinner that goes astray. It's a picture, as Christ is giving, of the publicans and sinners. Why is it that they're coming to Me? I'll tell you. Because though they were dead, now they're alive. I've brought them to life. I've sought them out. I've drawn them to Me. And now they come gladly, willingly, lovingly, joyfully. Why is it you stand and murmur? Why is it you complain and harbor resentment against Me? Because you still lie dead in your sins. And you're in the false way. You're stumbling at the stumbling stone. You're making the way of righteousness your personal works, which has been openly detested in My Word, saying that you cannot attain it. Blessed is the man, as we sang, whose sin is pardoned. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord imputeth not his sin. Paul opens this up in the book of Romans and testifies of the way of righteousness by the imputation of our sin to Christ and Christ's righteousness to us. Here's the question, how does that come to pass? It comes to pass not by your meriting or obtaining of it by your works, It comes to pass by God's grace, bringing us out of our death into life. Bringing us from rebellion and unbelief unto faith by which we embrace the Savior gladly, willingly, and then we take His yoke upon us gladly and willingly and walk in the paths of righteousness gladly and willingly, not looking to say to God, now that I've done this, You owe me, but rather, O God, now given me all of these blessings, I gladly give you all that I am. The The hatred that is borne by the self-righteous, what is it that they hate? Well, one thing they hate is the blessings God gives graciously. This is particularly pointed out when He says, look, your son comes and you kill for him the fatted calf. Inclusive of that is all that the Father previously was said to have given when He says in verse 22, bring forth the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it. Let us be, let us eat and be merry. Notice that the son skips over something. He says, This thy son was come. He actually misses something, doesn't he? He misses the fact that the son who had devoured 
his father's inheritance with harlots, who had committed all manner of sin, who had indeed been guilty of all these foul and polluted sins, is now returned. He overlooks that. He misses out on a fundamental key point that this one who was dead is now alive. But in doing so, he shows himself to despise the blessings that God gives graciously. Think of this for a moment. We know this implicitly as believers. The blessings of salvation are ours by grace. We know it so simply. Ephesians 2 puts it clearly to us. By grace are you saved through faith. Right? It's not of works. It's not of yourselves, lest any man should boast. It's exclusively of grace. The whole of salvation from election and calling, faith and repentance, all of the order of salvation from regeneration, justification, adoption, sanctification, glorification, all of it is bound up in one package over which is written the words grace. Grace alone. Sanctification by grace. Justification by grace. Obedience by grace. Good works by There's nothing we come to God with and say, give me that thou owest. Because brethren, He owes us nothing. We come and we implore for grace. We come and we, as one says it so beautifully, we come by grace for grace. We never cease with our petitions for grace. This is what we're told in the book of Hebrews. That we come boldly to the throne of grace to find grace to help time of need. Our grace, our petition is of grace, and our blessing is of grace. It's all of grace. And brethren, so many people have stated before us, and Lord willing will say, well, after we are but buried and eaten of worms in this earth, that the gospel of grace is a thing so free and clear that upon the hearing of it rightly, we say, that is too good. It far exceeds what we could ever hope to attain or obtain in this world. But you see, the self-righteous despise that. They look at that and say, that's not the way. We should be coming to God and saying, look what I've done, now pay me. Look what I've done, now you owe me. Look at all the things. I've been at church every single meeting. You owe my family the blessing. I've come to church after having had family worship, personal worship, catechism. I've read these books, prayed these prayers. I've not done that. I've not done this. You owe me the outpouring of your blessings upon my family. You owe me the outpouring of your blessings upon my soul. That's what the point is. When we come in that frame, we come more in the spirit and manner of the elder brother. I've served you these many years, and you've never given me so much as a kid by which I and my friends could make merry. But this, your son, who has wasted your inheritance, who has polluted your name, who has lived in sin, he comes back and you pour out. I 
ever known. What's amazing is this. In hating the blessings of grace given to others, he betrays the fact that he hates the grace that is held forth to him. Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. He says, it's all yours. It's held forth to you. It's always been extended to you. You've always had access to these things. It's worthy of note that those who most struggle with self-righteousness are not those who are outside of God's covenant. It's those who are in God's covenant. It's those who are more familiar with the law of God the truth of God, who understand what is right versus what is wrong. It's they who most struggle with these things. And the shame of it is this, that in God's covenant, all of the promises are in Christ, yea, and in Him, amen. All of the promises, brethren, in God's covenant are held forth to you free right now. Every single one. All is held forth. When Christ said to us, as He does regularly in His Word and at the Lord's Supper, this cup is the New Testament in My blood. The thing is, all of the blessings of the covenant, every single promise ever given, every single grace ever offered, is now by My blood ratified and it's handed over to you. Take it freely. And yet, what do we do, brethren? We struggle with our obedience. We struggle with our holiness. We struggle with our afflictions. We struggle with our troubles. And we approach God in the spirit of the elder brother. And we think, I couldn't dare come to God and say, I don't deserve it, but you've promised it. Would you freely give it? Because welling up within us, is that elder brother who says, I have to have something in my hand to come to God and say, give it to me because I've done this. Look how good of a husband. Look how good of a wife I've been. Look how good of a mother I've been. Therefore, bless me. Brethren, those things are subtle entrances of this selfish principle. And at root, what's going on is a fundamental despising of the free grace of God. God freely gives us all that He ever gives us. He freely offers to us all of the promises. Think again, it was referenced just briefly. In the book of Revelation, there is not another church so described as that of the Laodiceans. In chapter 3, Christ says, you're neither cold nor hot. You're lukewarm. He says in verse 17, you say, I'm rich, I'm increased with goods, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. What does Christ say? Get your act together straighten up, learn the law, and come back to Me. doesn't say any of that. 
He says, here's my counsel. Do you want to know what I'm offering, what I'm holding forth to you? It's this. Buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich. White raiment that thou mayest be clothed that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. Anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous therefore and repent. I stand at the door and knock If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. He says, look at what I'm holding forth to you. I hold forth every blessing and it's bound up in me. You have nothing in not having me. I bring all things of blessing, salvation, grace, spiritual sight, understanding, love, Holiness, obedience, it's all in me, freely given to you. When you first capture this, it will transform everything about your life with Christ. It will transform your prayers, it will transform your devotions, it will transform your obedience. Brethren, that any time ever there should be said of our obedience, look how bitter and furrowed their brows are. That is a disaster. We should be a people glad in obedience. There should be a fusion of joy in our service to Him. People should wonder that there is such delightful obedience to the law of God. But here's the thing. The self-righteous hear that and they say, you're right i got to get on it. And I'm going to start getting all my things in order. I'm going to read the best books, do the best things, and and all of a sudden what they've discovered is this. They've been placed back upon themselves. Here's what being said. All that you think of obedience and its exacting demands is true. God's law is perfect. And He demands holiness. But what's off in our self-righteous principle and approach is this thought that by my hands, by my resolutions, by my obedience, by my strength, I'm going to do this. I'm going to knuckle down. I'm going to get it done. Instead of going to God and saying, I cast all Christ has promised. He has prayed this prayer. Sanctify them by Thy truth. Thy Word is truth. For their sakes I've sanctified Myself that they might be sanctified. And so we come and we throw all upon Him. We seek all of our blessings by Him. We look at our children and we say, Oh God, their only hope is that You would save them. And think of the petitions that are often brought to Christ. Have mercy on Me. And save My children. The petition is of grace. Have mercy on me. My child is vexed with a devil. Have mercy on me. My son is blind. Have mercy on me. I myself am vexed sore with these distresses. The petition again and again and again is to the Lord's mercy. When it's not, it's because there is a despising of the grace of God. What this also shows is the hatred against the giver of grace. It's a discovery of this. The self-righteous thinks the world 
ought to be ruled by a different form. Now, there's a kernel, there's a seed, a little glimmer of something that's true. God is righteous. And He has said that the soul that sinneth it shall die. Cursed is every man that continueth not in the book of the law to do it. But it turns a blind eye to the fact that all men are by their sins. Paul actually opens our understanding to this in a way that is most astounding. He says in Romans chapter 3 that verse 20, by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. And speaks as well that God so brought this forth that every mouth should be silenced. Here's the point. As sinners, as it says in verse 19, it saith to them who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. By the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in His sight. The Lord has shown to us, yes, His law, but He doesn't show us His law as the ladder of attainment. He shows it first to show that there's no hope by our performance anymore. But the hope of acceptance with God is the hope of the righteousness of God apart from the law, which is testified of by the law and the prophets. The righteousness which is of faith in Jesus Christ unto all them, upon all them that believe, for there's no difference. And someone says, yep, that's justification. Justification by grace. Yeah, you're right. Show me where sanctification is by obedience. Show me where sanctification is by your merit. And the simple truth is this. All of it is by grace. There's a difference. Justification is the declaration of God's righteousness by grace, received by faith alone, whereby Christ's righteousness is reckoned unto us. Sanctification, however, is like grace, whereby as faith embraces Christ, Christ infuses us with holiness. He's transforming us. He's providing us these things which then enlivens us unto diligence so that being united to Christ who died unto sin, we now are to reckon ourselves dead unto sin. How? By grace, by virtue of the union we have with Christ. As Christ is alive, so we now are alive in Him. How is that the case? It's not by your prayers. Oh, you know it. Your prayers are they. On the best day, your prayers are weak. They're limited. They're so short. They're almost obscene when we step back and think of the glory that is possessed of God and the little stutters that we send up to heaven. Our praises, we hear the same words over and over again and we say, How is it that I am become so dull in my praise of God who is most full of glory? 
We realize it, don't we? There really is nothing we can do that merits God's grace, whether to justification or sanctification. We are solitarily secluded in this room of grace. But brethren, that's actually the hope. This is the great encouragement. We come to the giver of grace and we say, here's my appeal. You're faithful to your promise. Here's my appeal. You're gracious. You're merciful. And so I don't rely so much as an ounce of my hope upon my work. I place it all upon your grace. If that causes us hesitation, that's a good thing. Because it ought to then be followed up with an earnest petition grace by grace for more grace to magnify the God of grace. As we close, we see certainly that the passage condemns all such who would dare seek to gain by God by their own righteousness. We don't have works in any fullness. We trust that what has been said in no way denigrates from that truth. There is a necessity of good works as the attendance of grace, as the outworking of grace. And there is, of course, the various rewards that are in heaven allotted. But brethren, we see the wisdom of those who have preceded us in laboring for the Scriptures to say, even those are those things which come by God's grace at work in us, stirring us up unto faith and holiness so that the whole economy of God's kingdom of salvation is one whose transactions are all of God's grace. Think of it this way in simplicity. Christ Jesus, as Paul says in Titus, gave Himself not only to redeem a people from their sins, but to purify a people zealous of good works. So when you see a person zealous of good works, what do you see? You might say, I see a person who's diligent. That's true. Where did his diligence come from? You might say, I see a person who well knows God's law. Where did that knowledge come from? I see a person whose family is well ordered. I see a person who's diligent in public worship. All of that's right. But the question to be asked is this, where does it come from? And Paul tells us, it came from Christ who gave Himself to produce this. And if that's the case, what do we do? But go to Christ and we say, I abandon my appeal to my works and I implore you for the work that you've performed. Have your way with me. Give unto me this grace. Whether it is that I stand condemned by my sin and in the guilt of my transgressions, I come and I say, forgive me. Not because I'm praying this prayer. Not because of this resolving of future obedience. I appeal exclusively to the work that you've performed. Or as a believer, we come stumbling with our disobedience and obedience. We come discovering new sin and old sin. And we come and we say, oh God, for Christ's sake, not only forgive me, but sanctify me. 
make me glad in my obedience. By what ground? By the ground that Christ has purchased. It's His purchase. And He's been given to me. It's His blessing. The sum and substance of what we pray when we end our petitions and interlace them with this expression, for Christ's sake, in Christ's name, we're appealing to Him. Do it for His sake. Whereas it condemns all who would appeal to their own works, oh brethren, it opens to us this blessed truth that the Father has is yours. I will be your God. You shall be my people. That includes all of the blessings that could ever be imagined for the people of God. Do you have need of guidance? He's your God. Do you have need of forgiveness? He's your God. Do you have need of sanctification? your God. Do you have enemies against you? He's your God. Do you have trials that overwhelm you? He's your God. And all of those blessings are in simplicity given to you in that Word. Here's a blessing. I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. God is near to you and He says, you now bear My name upon yourself. Children, God has come near to you and He said, I'm yours, yours, you're Mine. And in doing so, He's saying, all that I have is now yours. Could you imagine your parents buy something for you? Sometimes we hear of gifts that parents give or grandparents give. And the parent comes and says, look, This is yours now. I bought it for you. It's yours. It's a gift. Maybe it's your birthday. Maybe it's a a blessing that your parents simply desired. And you say, oh, well, you know, take $10 for it. And your parents look and say, are you kidding me? This is yours. I got it for you. Your parents make meals for you. They sit down at dinner. You pray thanks to God. You don't reach into your pocket and say, Mom, here's $5 for the food that you've prepared. What the parents have is given to you. Brethren, here is the wonder of God's grace and covenant. All that He has, hear this word, is yours. Because He's given you Christ. And having Christ, you have all. And so it instructs us and calls upon us to kill. As another rightly understands that word in the Scriptures, we roll all upon Christ. And we say for His sake, bless even me. May God so lead us away from that self-righteous frame unto the glad believing frame that then is the spring and issue of all true obedience to the glory of our God who loved us and freely gave His Son for us. Would you stand with me for prayer?